Guy Mannering or the Astrologer by Sir Walter Scott, Volume 2, Chapter 27. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 2, Chapter 27. How like a hateful ape detected grinning midst his pilfered hoard, a cunning man appears whose secret frauds are opened to the day. Count Basil. There was a great movement at Woodbourne early on the following morning to attend the examination at Kippletringen. Mr. Pleydell, from the investigation which he had formerly bestowed on the dark affair of Kennedy's death, as well as from the general deference due to his professional abilities, was requested by Mr. McMullen and Sir Robert Hazelwood, and another justice of the peace who attended, to take the situation of chairman and the lead in the examination. Colonel Mannering was invited to sit down with them. The examination, being previous to trial, was private in other respects. The councillor resumed and reinterrogated former evidence. He then examined the clergyman and surgeon respecting the dying declaration of Meg Merrilies. They stated that she distinctly, positively and repeatedly declared herself an eyewitness of Kennedy's death by the hands of Hatterake and two or three of his crew, that her presence was accidental, that she believed their resentment at meeting him when they were in the act of losing their vessel through the means of his information, led to the commission of the crime, that she said there was one witness of the murder but who refused to participate in it, still alive, her nephew, Gabriel Farr, and she hinted at another person who was accessory after, not before the fact, but her strength there failed her. They did not forget to mention her declaration that she had saved the child and that he was torn from her by the smugglers for the purpose of carrying him to Holland. All these particulars were carefully reduced to writing. Dirk Hatterake was then brought in, heavily ironed, for he had been strictly secured and guarded owing to his former escape. He was then asked his name. He made no answer. His profession? He was silent. Several other questions were put, to none of which he returned any reply. Pleydell wiped the glasses of his spectacles and considered the prisoner very attentively. A very truculent-looking fellow, he whispered to Mannering. But, as Dogberry says, I'll go cunningly to work with him. Here, call in Souls, Souls the shoemaker. Souls, do you remember measuring some footsteps imprinted on the mud at the wood of Warwick in November, by my orders? Souls remembered the circumstance perfectly. Look at that paper. Is that your note of the measurement? Souls verified the memorandum. Now, there stands a pair of shoes on that table. Measure them and see if they correspond with any of the marks you've noted there. The shoemaker obeyed and declared that they answered exactly to the largest of the footprints. We shall prove, said the councillor aside to Mannering, that these shoes which were found in the ruins of Dernclue belong to Brown, the fellow whom you shot on the lawn at Woodbourne. Now, Souls, measure that prisoner's feet very accurately. Mannering observed Hatterake strictly and could notice a visible tremor. Do these measurements correspond with any of the footprints? The man looked at the note, then at his foot rule and measure, then verified his former measurement by a second. They correspond, he said, within a hairbreadth to a footmark broader and shorter than the former. Hatterick's genius here deserted him. De devil, he broke out, how could there be a footmark on the ground, when it was frost as hard as the heart of a memel log? In the evening, I grant you, Captain Hatterick, said Pleydell, but not in the forenoon. Will you favour me with information where you were upon the day you remember so exactly? Hatterick saw his blunder and again screwed up his hard features for obstinate silence. Put down his observation, however, said Pleydell to the clerk. 
At this moment the door opened, and much to the surprise of most present, Mr. Gilbert Glossin made his appearance. That worthy gentleman had, by dint of watching and eavesdropping, ascertained that he was not mentioned by name in Meg Merrily's dying declaration, a circumstance certainly not owing to any favourable disposition towards him, but to the delay of taking her regular examination and to the rapid approach of death. He therefore supposed himself safe from all evidence but such as might arise from Hatterake's confession, to prevent which he resolved to push a bold face and join his brethren on the bench during his examination. "'I shall be able,' he thought, "'to make the rascal sensible his safety lies in keeping his own counsel and mine, and my presence beside will be a proof of confidence and innocence. If I must lose the estate, I must, but I trust better things.' He entered with a profound salutation to Sir Robert Hazelwood, Sir Robert, who had rather begun to suspect that his plebeian neighbour had made a cat's paw of him, inclined his head stiffly, took snuff, and looked the other way. "'Mr. Corsand,' said Glossin to the other yoke fellow of justice, "'your most humble servant.' "'Your humble servant, Mr. Glossin,' answered Mr. Corsand dryly, composing his countenance, regis ad exemplar, that is to say, after the fashion of the baronet. "'McMorlan, my worthy friend,' continued Glossin, "'how do you do?' always on your duty umph said honest macmorlan with little respect either to the compliment or salutation colonel mannering a low bow slightly returned and mr pleydell another low bow i dared not have hoped for your assistance to poor country gentlemen at this period of the session pleydell took snuff and eyed him with a glance equally shrewd and sarcastic i'll teach him he said aside to mannering the value of the old admonition ne accessoris in concilium antiquam voceris but perhaps i intrude gentlemen said glossin who could not fail to observe the coldness of his reception is this an open meeting for my part said mr pleydell so far from considering your attendance as an intrusion mr glossin i was never so pleased in my life to meet with you especially as I think we should, at any rate, have had occasion to request the favour of your company in the course of the day. Well then, gentlemen, said Glossin, drawing his chair to the table, and beginning to bustle among the papers, where are we? How far have we got? Where are the declarations? Clark, give me all those papers, said Mr. Playdale. I have an odd way of arranging my documents, Mr. Glossin. Another person touching them puts me out, but I shall have occasion for your assistance by and by. Glossin, thus reduced to inactivity, stole one glance at Dirk Hatterick, but could read nothing in his dark scowl save malignity and hatred to all around. "'But, gentlemen,' said Glossin, "'is it quite right to keep this poor man so heavily ironed when he is taken up merely for examination?' This was hoisting a kind of friendly signal to the prisoner. "'He has escaped once before,' said Macmorlan dryly, and Glossin was silenced. Bertram was now introduced, and to Glossin's confusion was greeted in the most friendly manner by all present, even by sir robert hazelwood himself he told his recollections of his infancy with that candour and caution of expression which had afforded the best warrant for his good faith this seems to be rather a civil than a criminal question said glossin rising and as you cannot be ignorant gentlemen of the effect which this young person's pretended parentage may have on my patrimonial interest i would rather beg leave to retire oh no my good sir said mr Playdell. we can by no means spare you but why do you call this young man's claims pretended? I don't mean to fish for your defences against them, if you have any, but... Uh... Mr. Playdell, replied Glossin, I am always disposed to act above board, and I think I can explain the matter at once. 
this young fellow whom i take to be a natural son of the late ellen gowan has gone about the country for some weeks under different names caballing with wretched old madwoman who i understand was shot in a late scuffle and with other tinkers gypsies and persons of that description and a great brute farmer from liddersdale stirring up the tenants against their landlords which as sir robert hazelwood of hazelwood knows not to interrupt you mr glossin said playdell i ask you who you say this young man is why i say replied glossin and i believe that gentleman looking at hatterake knows that the young man is a natural son of the late ellen gowan by a girl called janet lighterheel who was afterwards married to hewitt the shipwright that lived in the neighbourhood of annan his name is godfrey bertram hewitt by which name he was entered on board the royal caroline excise yacht ay said playdell that is a very likely story but not to pause upon some difference of eyes complexion and so forth be pleased to step forward sir a young seafaring man came forward here proceeded the counsellor is the real simon pure here's godfrey bertram hewitt arrived last night from antigua via liverpool mate of a west indian and in a fair way of doing well in the world although he came somewhat irregularly into it while some conversation passed between the other justices and this young man Pladell lifted from among the papers on the table Hatterick's old pocket-book. A peculiar glance of the smuggler's eye induced the shrewd lawyer to think that there was something here of interest. He therefore continued the examination of the papers, laying the book on the table, but instantly perceived that the prisoner's interest in the research had cooled. "'It must be in the book still, whatever it is,' thought Pladell, and again applied himself to the pocket-book until he discovered, on a narrow scrutiny, a slit between the pasteboard and leather, out of which he drew three small slips of paper. Pladell now, turning to Glosson, requested the favour that he would tell them if he had assisted at the search for the body of Kennedy and the child of his patron on the day when they disappeared. "'I did not. That is, I did,' answered the conscience-struck Glosson. "'It is remarkable, though,' said the advocate, "'that connected as you were with the Ellen Gowan family, I don't recollect your being examined or even appearing before me,' while that investigation was proceeding i was called to london answered glossin on most important business the morning after that sad affair clerk said playdell minute down that reply i presume the business mr glossin was to negotiate these three bills drawn by you on uh, messrs van beest and van bruggen and accepted by one dirk hatterake in their name on the very day of the murder I congratulate you on their being regularly retired, as I perceive they have been. I think the chances were against it. Glossin's countenance fell. This piece of real evidence, continued Mr. Playdell, makes good the account given of your conduct on this occasion by a man called Gabriel Farr, whom we have now in custody and who witnessed the whole transaction between you and that worthy prisoner. Have you any explanation to give? Mr. Playdell, said Glossin, with great composure, I presume, if we were my counsel, you would not advise me to answer on the spur of the moment to a charge which the basest of mankind seem ready to establish by perjury. My advice, said the counsellor, would be regulated by my opinion of your innocence or guilt. In your case, I believe you take the wisest course, but you are aware you must stand committed. Committed? For what, sir? replied Glossin upon a charge of murder no only as art and part of kidnapping the child that is a bailable offence pardon me said playdell 
It's a plagium, and plagium is felony. Forgive me, Mr. Playdell, there is only one case upon record, Torrance and Waldy. They were, you remember, resurrection women who had promised to procure a child's body for some young surgeons, being upon honour to their employers rather than disappoint the evening lecture of the students, they stole a live child, murdered it, and sold the body for three shillings and sixpence. They were hanged, but for the murder, not for the plagium. Footnote. This is, in its circumstance and issue, actually a case tried and reported. Your civil law has carried you a little too far. Well, sir, but in the meantime, Mr. McMullen must commit you to the county jail in case this young man repeats the same story. Officers, remove Mr. Glossin and Hatterake and guard them in different apartments. Gabriel, the gypsy, was then introduced and gave a distinct account of his deserting from Captain Pritchard's vessel and joining the smugglers in action, detailed how Dirk Hatterake set fire to his ship when he found her disabled and under cover of the smoke escaped with his crew and as much goods as they could save, into the cavern, where they proposed to lie till nightfall. Hatterick himself, his mate Van Beest Brown, and three others, of whom the declarant was one, went into the adjacent woods to communicate with some of their friends in the neighbourhood. They fell in with Kennedy unexpectedly, and Hatterick and Brown, aware that he was the occasion of their disasters, resolved to murder him. He stated that he had seen them lay violent hands on the officer and drag him through the woods, but had not partaken in the assault nor witnessed its termination, that he returned to the cavern by a different route, where he again met Hatterick and his accomplices, and the captain was in the act of giving an account how he and Brown had pushed a huge crag over as Kennedy lay groaning on the beach, when Glossin suddenly appeared among them. To the whole transaction by which Hatterick purchased his secrecy he was witness. Respecting young Bertram, he could give a distinct account till he went to India, after which he had lost sight of him until he unexpectedly met with him in Liddesdale. Gabriel Farr further stated that he instantly sent notice to his aunt Meg Merrilies, as well as to Hatterick, who he knew was then upon the coast, but that he had incurred his aunt's displeasure upon the latter account. He concluded that his aunt had immediately declared that she would do all that lay in her power to help young Ellen Gowan to his right, even if it should be by informing against Dirk Hatterick and that many of her people assisted her besides himself, from a belief that she was gifted with supernatural inspirations. With the same purpose he understood his aunt had given to Bertram the treasure of the tribe of which she had the custody. Three or four gypsies, by the express command of Meg Merrilies, mingled in the crowd when the custom house was attacked, for the purpose of liberating Bertram, which he had himself effected. He said that in obeying Meg's dictates, they did not pretend to estimate the propriety or rationality, the respect in which she was held by a tribe precluding all such subjects of speculation. Upon further interrogation, the witness added that his aunt had always said that Harry Bertram carried that around his neck which would ascertain his birth. It was a spell, she said, that an Oxford scholar had made for him, and she possessed the smugglers with an opinion that to deprive him of it would occasion the loss of the vessel. Bertram here produced a small velvet bag, which he said he had worn round his neck from his earliest infancy, and which he had preserved, first from superstitious reverence, and latterly from the hope that it might serve one day to aid in the discovery of his birth. The bag, being opened, was found to contain a blue silk case, from which was drawn a scheme of nativity. Upon inspecting this paper, Colonel Mannering instantly admitted 
that it was his own composition and afforded the strongest and most satisfactory evidence that the possessor of it must necessarily be the young heir of ellangowan by avowing his having first appeared in that country in the character of an astrologer and now said Playdell, make out warrants of commitment for hatterick and glosson until liberated in due course of law yet he said i'm sorry for glosson now i think said mannering he's incomparably the least deserving of pity of the two the other's a bold fellow though as hard as flint very natural colonel said the advocate that you should be interested in the ruffian and i in the knave that's all professional taste but i can tell you that glossin would have been a pretty lawyer had he not such a turn for the roguish part of the profession scandal would say observed mannering he might not be the worst lawyer for that scandal would tell a lie then replied Paydell, as she usually does laws like laudanum it's much more easy to use it as a quack does than to learn to apply it like a physician end of volume two chapter twenty seven <laughs>